Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Boulder, produced by the Boulder Media Group. My apologies for my asthma-induced laryngitis, but the show must go on, and we've got a great one for you today. In just a moment, you'll meet the network television correspondent who had an embarrassing implosion on the air that might have cost him his job, but instead, it actually led to a life-changing discovery. You know, you don't sound that bad. I like that, Mark. It's kind of gravelly, and you know, I appreciate that. You know, we also got a really interesting guest coming up. Where that really bald, ripped, 70-something guy and all those print ads that you've seen. You know what I'm talking about. He's an older guy, but, man, he looks like a, a million bucks. Those photos are not Photoshopped, and he's not a model. He's a doctor, and he believes that he can help all men lose the belly fat and recapture their youth and vitality. Plus, one of America's top travel experts tells us how to be the world's smartest traveler. We also have one of the most inspirational people you will ever meet. He's a Navy veteran who is now a quadriplegic multi-sport superstar. All of that and more coming up in this edition of Growing Boulder. He's a former network war correspondent and a news anchor on ABC who co-hosts Nightline and is a correspondent for the weekend edition of Good Morning America. And he got a good bit of unwelcome publicity. This was back in 2004 when on the air he had a full-blown panic attack with over 5 million viewers watching. Can you imagine? I remember that well. And as, as often the case, the bad times lead to the good, and and that's what happened in this case, folks. He discovered that he had some real issues and found a surprising way of dealing with them. It's all laid out in a wickedly funny book that may be the most unusual book ever written on the subject of meditation. It's called 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. A true story. Let's find out more as we chat with ABC News anchor and author Dan Harris. Hey, Dan, how are you? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the kind welcome. Well, you know, thanks for writing the book because it is fascinating. And what happened after your panic attack is is incredible. But let's talk about the underlying issues that brought it on because you spent six years in Mideast war zones. When you returned, you say that you self-medicated with what most people would consider recreational drugs. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what happened. I think it was all kind of a, a series of mindless uh, decisions, really. I got to ABC News when I was a, a kid, really. I was 28, and I looked barely post-pubescent, and I was working with these giants like Peter Jennings and Diane Sawyer. And and uh, my my way of coping with that, was my insecurity about that, was to become a workaholic. And then 9-11 came along, and I... I volunteered to go to these war zones without ever really thinking about the psychological consequences. And when I got home after a particularly long stretch, um, I got depressed. And I wasn't even self-aware enough to know that I was depressed. I just wasn't feeling good. Uh, And before I got diagnosed with depression officially, I just blindly self-medicated with cocaine and ecstasy. And um, even though I was only doing it for a brief period of time and wasn't doing it when I was on the air or when I was working, it blew up in my face. And uh, with that panic attack, which, you know, I found out later that the the drugs raise the level of adrenaline in your brain and primed me to have that panic attack. And when I realized what a moron I'd been, I knew I needed to, you know, make some changes. And you know what, Dan? One of the most interesting parts of your story is that we can, you know, you, you tell it so well, but there's no way that you're the only guy going through something like, look at look what you had here, stressful career, too many drugs, depression, and an out-of-control inner voice, which really combined to, to, to this, you know, we all have this. So you called these inner voice uh, a major pain in the you-know-what. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the inner voice in the book, and, and I want to be clear from the from the jump that I'm not talking about uh, schizophrenia here. I'm talking about the inner narrator that is the central feature of all of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. And when we're not aware of it, it yanks us around. And that the, the, the primary uh, characteristics of this voice are that um, it's, it's repetitive, it's negative, it's often negative. It's, it's ceaselessly self-referential. It's constantly casting forward into the future, thinking about the past instead of just focusing on what's happening right now. It has us 
judging other people, wanting things, not wanting things, et cetera, et cetera. That's the nature of the voice. And when, when, I, when it was pointed out to me that that is basically our lives, but there's a way to tame it, I got very interested. Folks, we're talking with Dan Harris, ABC News anchor and correspondent, uh, and, and let's talk about taming it, because you uh, were really not the kind of guy predisposed to get into meditation. You thought, as many do, that it was really kind of a hippie swami thing, but uh, tell, us, uh, tell us how Peter Jennings actually pushed you in that direction unknowingly. Yeah, unwittingly, very much. He, he was a guy who could have used a little bit of meditation, but he, he assigned me to cover faith and spirituality for ABC News, uh, and this kicked into high gear right around the time that I was realizing that I'd been a moron in my private life. Uh, so these, this comp, the confluence of these two events shoved me in the direction of finding um, meditation. It took many years before I got there, and I want to be clear that I didn't use meditation to fix my drug problem. Uh, I, I went to see a medical professional for that. Um, but I had always assumed it was only for weirdos, that it was uh, for you know people who lived in a yurt or collected crystals and were really into Cat Stevens, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't something that I had any interest in doing. But then I heard about the science, and the science is extremely compelling. It shows that it can, that meditation can lower your blood pressure, boost your immune system, and literally rewire key parts of your brain that have to do with well-being uh, and stress. And uh, that that really got me intrigued. It's a weird thing, though, to to try for the first few times, isn't it? Most people, when they meditate, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, nothing seems to happen. It's hard. It's underwhelming. How, how did you take to it initially? Uh, all of those things are absolutely true, and I think it's based on misapprehensions of, of, of what meditation actually is. People think that the goal is to, quote-unquote, clear the mind, which is impossible until you die, perhaps, uh, you're not going to clear the mind. What meditation is, is uh, exercise for your brain. And you are trying to, it's, it's essentially a focusing exercise. Uh, so you're trying to focus on one thing at a time, which is a radical act in this age of information overload. You're, and in this case, usually what you're focusing on is your breath. Um, you're not breathing in a special way. You're just trying to focus on the feeling of the breath coming in and going out. And then every time your mind wanders, which it will a million times, to so all sorts of crazy inane things like what are you going to have for lunch, et cetera, et cetera. You just catch your mind wandering and bring your attention back to your breath. It sounds ridiculously simple, and on some levels it is, but it is also a bicep curl for your brain because you're, leave, you're, you're breaking a lifetime of habit of walking around in this daydream about the future and the past and instead focusing on what's happening right now. I just would hasten to add that in the 1940s, if you told somebody you were going running, they would say, who's chasing you? <laughs> Public health revolutions happen fast. Nobody exercised in this country in any systematic way um, in the last, in the middle of part of the last century. Now, many of us do it. If we don't, we feel guilty about it. The same thing is happening now with meditation because what happened with exercise is science proved it's really good for you, and that's starting to happen with meditation. So I think the PR problem that meditation has, and has many, is being chipped away at, and I think we're going to see more people starting to do this, and it will help to have more, quote-unquote, normal people or those who aren't wearing robes or, or uh, long, dangly earrings and, and shawls out there talking about this. You know, Dan, I think you've taken a big step toward, uh, you know, chipping away at this misconception when you describe it as exercise for the brain, which I have never heard. And, of course, uh, everybody of a certain age now is, is just living in fear of dementia and Alzheimer's. People fear that more than they do cancer these days. Other than uh, shutting your brain down to some extent, uh, has there, is there science that says that this exercise may actually uh, delay the onset of dementia? Uh, there is science that I'm aware of that shows that it slows cognitive, uh, age-related cognitive decline. So um, I haven't looked deeply into those studies, but it, they're there and very, very interesting and intriguing to me for sure. Um, uh, and you know, I find it comforting, for example, for example, that my mom is now doing it. Um, and my mom is a scientist and a very skeptical human being, and uh, she read the studies and realized that this was something that probably could help her. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it, just as we take care of our bodies uh, because we want to uh, be as healthy as possible for as long as possible, we need to start thinking about taking care of our minds and our brains. 
Your job, Dan, is a very high-pressure job. Everybody knows that. But these days, every career is very high-pressured, so there have to be a lot of people going through what you did. Have you heard from any other uh, big names in the news business that, that have uh, confided in you that they've shared similar feelings? Oh, I think the 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 experience of being in a high-pressure job and letting the stress uh, drag you down is uh, extremely common. And, yes, I've heard from a lot of people in the news business about uh, – the accuracy of the portrayal of the stresses, but you know, I, I would you know, hasten to add that whoever, whatever you're doing in your life, if you're trying to be great at it, it is stressful. And that that could be true of being a volunteer in your retirement. It could be true of being a parent or a grandparent. It could be true of whatever career you have, even if it's uh, not as high profile or stressful as the one I happen to occupy right now. And there, there is stress and strain inherent in this kind of uh, pursuit, uh, the pursuit of excellence of, of any quality. And I think you, we need that some of that stress and strain is really useful. I'm not arguing that we, we should, you know, become zenned out zombies. However, what I've noticed is that we tend to make our suffering worse than it needs to be. And that is where the, the value add for me of meditation is. By the 17th time that I'm worrying about whether I'm going to make my flight and all the awful consequences of for whatever story I'm working on, if I miss that flight might be, I've learned to ask myself, is this useful? Should I maybe start thinking about something else at this point? Because the 18th time I run through these consequences is no longer going to be helpful. Folks, you know, in, in this celebrity-obsessed culture that we live in, Bill and I have often said that the highest use, the highest value of a celebrity anywhere is to share their problems with the rest of us and what they've learned so that we know we're not alone and that we can learn from their experiences. And, folks, Dan Harris, ABC News anchor, has done exactly that. His book is called 10% Higher, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Uh, it's not only a true story. It's a lot of fun to read. This is a guy with a great sense of humor and an ability to string words together. Dan, thanks so much for your time, and, uh, and good luck with the book. Coming up, The Art of Life, How an Abstract Painter Finds Purpose in Her Paintings. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. You know, we all capture and save the experiences that we have in our lives in different ways. Artist Martha Jo Mahoney, she takes pictures with her mind, and she has this gift to translate them into abstract paintings. Now in her 60s, Mahoney's doing the best work she's ever done, and she enjoys the process more than ever. In fact, she uses her art not just to communicate with the world, but sometimes to escape it. Inside her studio, with a brush in her hand, artist Martha Jo Mahoney is communicating with the outside world. I really paint because it's my soul. I have to paint. It's my language. It's what I have to say to you. And this is how I say it. Martha is an avid traveler whose only camera is her mind. Her art is a feeling derived from nature, an abstract impression of her memories translated onto canvas or paper. Uh, this is called snorkeling, so I like to snorkel, obviously. Like most accomplished abstract painters, Martha has the technical expertise to paint realistic landscapes or portraits, but it's the challenge of abstraction that draws her into the studio every day. In about 1995, I started abstracting, and once I abstracted, I never went back, never looked back. I found the, what I really love to do. It's problem solving, continually you're problem solving. 
So you're constantly taking away or adding to, taking away and adding to. What don't you need? What? How can you say it the least way, hmm. especially with abstraction? Martha's work wins major awards, has been shown nationwide, and is collected worldwide, but her biggest commission, at least in terms of size, is the 45-foot-high mural on the side of a building in downtown Orlando. The critics loved it, but she knew it was a big deal because... My aunt even came down from Kalamazoo, Michigan to see it. <laughs> it was neat. While painting is how Martha communicates with the world, it's also how she escapes it. When I paint, I forget about anything else that might be really bugging me. Children, grandchildren, uh, spouses, uh, uh, financial problems, uh, uh, anything. Anything I'm upset about, I can take it out right here on the canvas and scare the hell out of me, you know? But I get it out here. And sometimes it's the best work I've done. Now in her mid-60s, Martha is creating her best work ever. Age doesn't, is, it's a state of mind. That state of mind was severely tested just over one year ago when she was diagnosed with aortic valve stenosis, a disease of the heart valves that can lead to sudden death. She was in such bad shape that doctors recommended a risky open-heart surgery to transplant a life-saving bovine valve. As the surgery approached, Martha spent more time with her family and friends and more time in the studio painting her impressions of what lie ahead. This one was done um, right, right before surgery. Oh, wow. And it's um, called The Gathering, and it's kind of like uh, we're all gathering together to see if she makes it. <laughs> Will she make it? So this is my spirit, and this is my strength, and I'm gathering myself for this wonderful... Uh, uh, you know, operation I'm going to get through. The operation was a success, but recovery hasn't been easy. She says without her husband, family, friends, and painting, she might not have made it. I just need this. That's, that's really an brush in my hand. And I feel so good after that. I, I've had that, and that's enough for me. While the process of painting is nearly sacred to Martha, her paintings are not. My thought is, um, you've got these big canvases, if they don't sell after a while... Get rid of them. They're not, you know, so precious to me. Just paint over them. This canvas used to be a human figure, a nude, before she painted over it. I said, boy, I'm tired of you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you're not the best nude I've ever made, so you're out of (laughs) here. And I like that much better. Ultimately, a great abstract painting is a lot like a great life. If it's got the right balance, if it's got the right movement, if it's, if it's going to hold together. And Martha Jo Mahoney fully understands the goal for both is to reach the point that you say, I don't think I could put one more stroke on there that would add to that thing. I just like it the way it is. And we are happy to report that Martha's health and her art are both better than ever. And, you know, Bill, as collectible as her art is, she doesn't take it or herself too seriously. In fact, she's not afraid to paint over a canvas and start all over again, which I think is really a great metaphor, folks, for life in general. We can't be afraid to try something new, to start over, take away something and add something else. And then, like Martha does in her painting, just continue to refine until we've actually created the life that we want. It's so cool because even if we don't feel like we have artistic talent, we all have a talent for expression. And just throwing color up and getting all these things out can be a huge help taking our mind off of the daily issues that we have, something that provides us the kind of escape that Martha gets from her painting. To some degree, you see what you look for when it comes to life, which is why we like Key Howard. He's always looking for the good, and when he sees it, he's anxious to share it. Here's Key. You all know the story of Noah. The Lord said, in six months I'm going to make it rain until the entire earth is covered in water. But I want to save two of every living thing on the planet, so I'm ordering you to build me an ark and a flash of lightning. He delivered his specifications for this magnificent ark. Six months later, he reappeared and said, Noah, where's my ark? As a lightning bolt crashed from the heavens. Lord, please forgive me, begged Noah. I've done my level best. 
But there were big problems to overcome. First, I had to get a building permit for the ark, and your plans didn't exactly meet code, so they had to be redrawn. Then I got into a fight over whether or not the ark needed a sprinkling system. I had to get a variance from the city to build the ark in my front yard, and I, I couldn't get enough wood because there was a ban on cutting trees to save the spotted owl. Then I gathered up two of every animal and got sued by an animal rights group who objected to my only taking two of every kind, and they didn't take kindly to the idea that they had no jurisdiction over the conduct of the supreme being. And to top it off, the IRS has seized my assets, claiming I'm trying to avoid taxes by leaving the country. I don't think I can finish your ark for at least another five years, wailed Noah. Well, the sky began to clear. The sun began to shine as a rainbow arched across the sky. You mean you're not going to destroy the earth, asked Noah? No, said the Lord. The government already has. Until next time, this is Key Howard. Ain't life grand? Well, life sure does seem grand when you hear it from the mouth of Key Howard. Great stuff. Coming up, a legendary athlete who proves that you can overcome no matter what life throws at you. How? Well, that's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this is the Growing Boulder program. Time now for our surviving and thriving interview with the right kind of care and support and, most importantly, the right attitude. It is possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to actually thrive in the aftermath. Here's a statistic that hopefully you'll pay attention to. One in five of us have a disability, one in five Americans, and we all have a 20% chance of becoming disabled at some point. Our next guest, in fact, is a 46-year-old Navy veteran, multi-sport athlete who competed in triathlons and marathons. He's a sports journalist, an entrepreneur, a motivational speaker, a father and a husband, and he is also a quadriplegic, a five-time quad division champion of the Boston Marathon, and in 22 years of competition, he has won 79 gold medals in the National Wheelchair Veterans Games. Let's welcome the legendary Mike Savicki. How are you, Mike? Fine, thanks. Legendary is a bit of a stretch, but I appreciate the wonderful introduction. I don't think anybody will argue after hearing that. You know, How, how did you become disabled, Mike, and, and where did the inspiration come from for you to do what you did? I was a Navy pilot stationed in Pensacola, Florida, right after I graduated from college back in 1990 and was injured in a diving accident. It was kind of a fluky thing. I literally just walked up to my waist in the ocean and went to dive under a wave. The wave broke and pushed my head down. I hit the sand on the bottom and had a compression fracture, basically, the force of my body was too much for my neck and a bone chip. Mm the C6 and C7 vertebrae hit the spinal cord just enough to paralyze me. It was a it was a fluke. It changed my life in an instant. And from there, I had to relearn how to do pretty much everything in my life all over again. And finding inspiration was something that um, didn't come easy. I had to dig down, kind of look inside me and realized that I was still the same person I was before I was injured. I just had to learn to do things differently. And for me, sports has always been a part of my life. So getting back into sports was as important to my rehabilitation as it was to getting on living. 
Hmm. So you went from a guy, Mike, who uh, had to learn, relearn everything to a guy who is now teaching us all, you know, some very important lessons about life in general. You're, you're now one of over 18 million people in the U.S. and Canada that have mobility issues, and you've been named the spokesperson for National Mobility Awareness Month for the third year in a row. What is that, and, and what's the goal? Well, May is National Mobility Awareness Month. It's the annual celebration that encourages uh, seniors, veterans, caregivers, and people with disabilities to enjoy active, mobile lifestyles, basically to get out there and make the most of what you still have. It's organized by a group called the National Mobility Equipment Dealers Association. Um, They're a group of approximately 600 mobility dealers, manufacturers, and driving rehabilitation specialists that um, are are in place just to help people with disabilities get back out there. Um, You brought up a really interesting number. You said 18 million people in the U.S. and Canada have mobility issues, and 6 million of those, believe it or not, are veterans, Uh, people like myself who've uh, sustained injuries, whether it's in the line of duty or not, um, and also veterans and seniors who are aging into their disabilities. So it's, a, it's a, a, a number that we don't know much about. May is in place to um, really promote the opportunities that people have, and National Mobility Awareness Month is a fantastic campaign. I'm, pl- I'm proud to be a part of it. I was reading something, too, uh, about the Local Heroes campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how we could maybe nominate somebody that we know? Yeah, the Local Heroes campaign is really at the heart and soul of Mobility Awareness Month. What we're looking for are people from communities across the country, um, people with disabilities, caregivers, seniors, veterans, you know, the group I mentioned earlier. Uh, We're actually giving away four uh, fully accessible, customized vehicles uh, to local heroes, people who are inspirational people who are overcoming mobility challenges in the communities across the country. Now, these vehicles, believe it or not, uh, they're, your, they're your minivans, they're your accessible vehicles, and they cost upwards of sixty-five dollars to $70,000 each. So this is a really fantastic opportunity. And to nominate someone, uh, we're asking you to go to mobilityawarenessmonth.com, upload a story, whether it's just a couple hundred words in a photo or a short two-minute video, uh, get the person into our competition, our contest, and then collect votes. And from there, the top 10% of vote-getters will become finalists. And I'm excited to see who the four winners will be this year. Having a vehicle you know, delivered to your driveway, it can change a life. Folks, we're talking with uh, Mike Savicki, who is, is a very inspirational guy, a quadriplegic who, as we mentioned previously, a five-time quad division champion of the Boston Marathon. Mike, is it true that you actually ran uh, the Boston Marathon before your accident and, and you are the only person to, to, to finish it as both uh, uh, an able-bodied runner and, and someone that's disabled? Yeah, believe it or not, when I was in college, I went to school in Boston. Um, there were... There's a short list of things I wanted to do before I graduated and left the city, and running the Boston Marathon was kind of a rite of passage. I actually ran it twice before I was injured, hmm. um, 1989 and 1990. And then in the fall of 1990 it was when I had my spinal cord injury and had to relearn how to do everything again, and including the sports and getting back into running and racing. Uh, long story short, I've now done it 16 times in a wheelchair, um, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal event, and, uh, you know, it changed my life, and it's, it's something I, I've, I hold close to my heart. I, I want to go back and do it a couple more times. I'm a new father now, and I think when our daughter gets old enough, I'd love for her to see her dad cross the finish line at least once more. Mike, I, I can't help but think back to the Christopher Reeve thing and the discussion that, that that entailed. And I remember a lot of people saying, well, if something like that ever happened to me, I, I wouldn't want to be around anymore. Here you are, the polar opposite example of that. Can, can you explain, to, I mean, going through something like that, 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 that how that was such a bad attitude to say, well, that would be it for me? Yeah, you never know um, really what you have inside you until you're put in a position where you're challenged, whether it's physically or mentally or emotionally. 
in my case, I was challenged physically. Um, that was sort of on the surface by breaking my neck, but also emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, it really tested me. And what I've really had to learn was, um, and this is a, a lesson for people that I, I've, I've really taken to heart, is until you're put in a position, you don't know what you can do, but having an attitude to stay open to challenge, saying, you know, I can do this, I can get through something. Um, I may not know how to do it, but I have the willingness to do it. It starts, it's, it's, it starts sort of one step at a time. And you can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel until you make mo forward motion. So for me, it was learning to push my wheelchair out of my room and into the hallway and then out of the hospital and then down the road and one mile and two miles and three miles and learning how to drive again. So, you know, how was I able to get through it? It was a, a long, difficult process, but it was one that came with a little bit of drive and determination, something I never knew I had inside me. Folks, he is the inspirational Mike Savicki. You can learn more at MikeSavicki.com. And if you'd like to lo uh, nominate a local hero for a new wheelchair-accessible van, go to MobilityAwarenessMonth.com. Thanks, Mike. Coming up next, you've seen his picture, but you've never known his name or his story until now. The famous, older, bald-headed, ripped, 74-year-old you see in all those national newspaper ads is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer here along with Mark Middleton, and you're listening to Growing Bolder. And our next guest is a medical doctor from Las Vegas, but he's somebody whose picture you've probably seen, even if you don't realize it. Let me help you with it. He's the bald-headed, shirtless older guy wearing only jeans and cut like a maniac. He's chiseled in those now famous ads for medical clinics. And contrary to popular opinion, those ads, Mark, have not been doctored at all. Yeah, and they have been everywhere. Very, very obvious to see. At 75 years old, he is the ripped poster boy for super fit aging. Uh, but he's not always been that way. In fact, he was an overweight, run-down, overworked, middle-aged doctor until he became 60 and somehow transformed himself into the guy with the body of an Olympic gymnast. He's now written a New York Times best-selling book to show us all how he did it. It's called The Life Plan Diet, Become Heart Healthy, Recharge Your Sex Life, and Make the Second Half of Your Life the Best Half of Your Life. Let's find out more as we welcome Dr. Jeffrey Life. Hey, Doc, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Man, we appreciate you taking a break from your day to, to share some of your wisdom with us. What happened when you turned 60? What gave you the motivation to turn your life around and to reclaim your health? Well, I was really, uh, you know, I was a physician practicing family medicine in Pennsylvania. I was uh, really out of shape. I was really a poor example to my patients, to my kids, and to my girlfriend. And uh, one day I picked up a magazine uh, called Muscle Media, and it was a uh, Bill Phillips magazine. And it talked about how to transform yourself. And uh, I, I started, uh, I hired a nutritionist to exercise the uh, uh, guy and started working out, and then I entered the Body for Life contest the second year Bill Phillips had it in 1998, and ended up winning that contest, and just been on this path ever since. So it's like 17, eight about 17 years ago. That's incredible. 16, 16 years ago, and I guess the time from when you were turned 60 to your mid 60s, you were energized, you were a lean, mean, sexagerian machine. But in your mid-60s, you say something else happened. You started to shrink, and you kind of battled a little bit of depression. What what went wrong? Well, 
I wasn't sure. Um, I knew something was going on. And then I went to a conference and learned about uh, uh, hormone decline and uh, became a patient of Cynogenics uh, and uh, got my hormone deficiencies corrected. And um, that really turned me around. I ended up joining Cynogenics uh, 10 years ago. I just left them. Um, but uh, this is how this all got started. And uh, been on a path ever since. This is my third book out. I'm 75 now and going strong. So basically, you experienced what is uh, we now know to be andropause, which is male menopause. You you accumulated belly fat. Your muscles no longer responded to workout. Uh, you started taking testosterone injections and human growth hormone. Uh, are, are we not to be worried about that? Do you, you believe in that now? Well, you know, when I started this 10 years ago, I was deficient in both growth hormone and testosterone. And it was it was a kind of a... It was very new and a lot of uh, criticism from my colleagues. But now we know after 10 years uh, of, of many, many studies done that it's it's really uh, the, the decline in hormones that really creates problems for men and women. And if you can correct that and prevent that decline through either diet, nutrition, or supplementation, then you maintain a great quality of life and slow uh, the aging process down. It's so interesting how little we know and how much we're starting to learn. Even as a physician, you know, there, there were surprises there that, that you hit in aging and, and understanding what was happening to your body. You know, I know the NIA recommends that human growth hormone not be used for anti-aging. Are you thinking that that's going to change? Well, I, I agree it should not be used for anti-aging, but it should definitely be used for people that are for, for real deficient, you know, that have been documented to be deficient in growth hormone. Because we know there's a vast amount of literature on what happens to people that are deficient in growth hormone. They age faster, they're at risk for all the age-related diseases, and their quality of life is very, very poor. And if that's corrected, all that changes. So I, I think that more and more we're going to uh, learn that, uh, uh, that people that are really documented properly to be deficient through the special testing need to be on growth hormone. I mean, it just makes all the difference in the world in terms of someone's life, their length of life, their quality of life, and uh, and their aging process. So I think that's changing. It's definitely changed already with testosterone in men. And we know that men with low testosterone levels are at the greatest risk for heart disease and the greatest risk for prostate cancer. And uh, by just getting their levels up to a healthy level, we can uh, prevent all that and maintain a great quality of life and great sexual function and energy as as men age. So tell us now, if you will, Doc, because this is something every guy over the age of 50 wonders. How do we get rid of the belly fat? How can we look like you? Well, that's what my third book's all about. And, And it's really a combination of making sure your hormone levels are at the and at the upper end of the healthy range. And that, that should be done by a doctor that really knows how to monitor this and take care of people that are on hormone replacement therapy. That's the easy part. The hard part is of following the right diet and exercising properly. And that's what my book uh, books are all about. Um, the right kind of resistance training, the right kind of cardio training, and eating, eating in such a way that you get rid of body fat and you, you turn your body into a fat burning machine. You know, Mark said, you know, you were, you were not in the best shape at all when you were in your fifties. It, it's not too late. Even if you wait into your sixties to start to turn yourself around. No, it's not too late. If you wait till you're 50, 60 or even 70. Uh, I mean, they're just if, if men, my patients that make a change in their lifestyle uh, will start dropping body fat and there's no reason in the world a guy in their 50s, 60s, or 70s can't have ripped abs. Uh, there's no reason. And, and and there's every reason to do that because uh, that means that you really get rid of bad fat that's causing disease. And it's, it's the belly fat that really puts men and women at the highest risk for disease. And, Doc, in our final 25 seconds, you're a big believer in lifting weights uh, and beyond that, the heavy weights, right? No, not real heavy. Uh, as as people get older, I don't believe in really heavy 
uh, uh, max lifting. I believe in higher repetitions, uh, lighter weight, like 12, 15 reps. Uh, uh, yeah, because I think you you really increase your risk for an injury, and and so I I avoid heavy lifting uh, in people that are in there 45 and older. Are you still looking good? You still look like that ad. Oh yeah, nice yeah. man. A, I gotta tell you, it's a daily battle. I mean, I I'm I'm like most people. I have a I want to eat the bad foods and drink the bad things. And so I have to avoid that, and and I have strategies in my book on how you can do that. Not a bad thing to be the 74-year-old poster boy for age. The Life Plan Diet is a thought-provoking read about a path to active aging and longevity. Learn more about the book and Dr. Life by going to drlife.com. Have you got the travel bug? Well, coming up next, one of America's top travel experts joins us to tell us how to be the world's smartest traveler. Next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton, and that, of course, is Bill Schaefer. And our next guest is a consumer advocate who specializes in travel. He's a pioneer in digital journalism. In fact, he founded the Internet's first business travel website back in 1994, and he began blogging in 1996 before it was even called blogging. Pretty much a visionary, huh? He became ABCNews.com's first travel columnist in 97, hosted a cable TV show, and the guys worked with NPR, ABC, NBC, CNN, and the BBC. He's a nationally syndicated columnist for National Geographic, USA Today, Huntington Post. You kind of get the idea, folks. This guy gets around. And he's got a new book out called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Let's find out more from Chris Elliott. How are you, Chris? Hey, I'm good. How are you guys doing? Are you someplace exotic and exciting, or where are you today? I am in Cedar City, Utah, which is both exotic and exciting. <laughs> this is uh, an area that is known for its national parks and its famous Utah Shakespeare Festival, too, here at Southern Utah University. Not bad. Pretty interesting. Hey, you know, you live the kind of life that most of us I, dream about. Your family is pretty much on an open-ended journey around the world as you cover adventure for all those different organizations we talked about. Do you ever get tired of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that's a great question. Every now and then I do get a little fatigued, but um, I, when, I, when I do, I take a week off, and I'm always reminded of the fact that traveling is a privilege, and uh, so um, I try not to take anything for granted. So, so is, your, is your next book then going to be called, like, Staying at Home with Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I love to travel, actually, and um, but there is a time to, to sort of take time off and, and not do that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to call my people staying at home. I don't know how well that would sell. <laughs> you know, you've always been a, uh, an advocate for consumers, Chris. In general, I think most of us are displeased with the customer service of airlines. How would you rate the industry as a whole today from that perspective? I would like to hope that things have gotten better, but based on my own experience, uh, and you're right, in addition to traveling a lot, I deal with people's travel problems. I write a syndicated column that appears in a lot of newspapers across the country, and my experience is that airline service in general is not getting better. What airlines have done over the last couple of years is something called unbundling, where they've taken things that are traditionally included in the price of your seat such as the ability to make a seat reservation, a meal, um, a check bag, and they've taken that out, and that's generated a lot of complaints. It's made the overall cost of air travel higher, 
And at the same time, in order to make more money, they've reduced services. So now if you want to make a reservation um, by phone, they're going to add a surcharge to that. Oftentimes the service levels you get on flights are, are bad. They were bad before. They, they don't seem to be getting any better, unfortunately. So that keeps me very busy as a consumer advocate. You know, Chris, you ask them and they go, well, yeah, we do that to try to save you money if you don't want this stuff. But I guess that's not happening. Are there any airlines out there you like that are doing it right? I do, yes. I, I like um, Southwest Airlines and JetBlue. I like Virgin America. Um, I like some of the international carriers like Cafe Pacific and Singapore. They seem to have a really great service culture, and they seem to do things right. And they have happy employees, too, and I think that counts for something. And your new book, Chris, is titled How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Um, give us a couple of tips. What can we do to get closer to that? Well, smart travel means being prepared, first and foremost. Most of the problems that I deal with in my book are problems that can be easily avoided if you just do a little advanced planning. So my first suggestion would be to uh, do some of the common sense things that people just seem to avoid uh, or, or take for granted when they're, when they're on the road. For example, a lot of people don't call their airline to confirm that their flight is leaving on time or even bother to check their smartphones before they go somewhere. And they show up at the airport and their flight is delayed or canceled. The same thing for a hotel. Um, call to make sure that you're, uh, you still have a reservation. Um, you know, have a packing list, for instance. Those are all things that you don't really need a book to, uh, to, to be able to do. Um, my book, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler, actually focuses on the other 10% of problems that aren't so easy to see on the horizon and um, there are actually some, some really great tips that I offer for how to overcome some of these um, you know, more, uh, I would say, things that you just can't uh, necessarily see coming your way uh, and, uh, and plan for. And I'm kind of intrigued now, Chris. What kind of things are you talking about? Well, you know, one of the things I deal with um, in almost every chapter is how to avoid a problem when it becomes a problem. So, for example, if you have a service problem, if you do show up at your hotel and you're, it doesn't have a reservation, what are the ways of um, ensuring that you do uh, get a hotel room for that night? And um, one of the things that I advise in the book, How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler, is to resolve any problem that you possibly can in real time. Uh, if you don't do that and if you wait to get home, then you're probably going to have very limited success in having the travel company resolve it. A lot of times, um, employees have the ability to fix things right then and there that they wouldn't if you're if you come home and you've decided to write an angry letter to to the uh, uh, to to the uh, travel company. We're talking to Chris Elliott, who's written a new book called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. Uh, Chris, it seems like no matter what we buy these days, in every store we go into, they want to sell us insurance. Uh, is travel insurance a good idea in general? Yeah, actually, the first chapter of this book that I wrote was on travel insurance. And, yeah, it absolutely is something you should consider. Um, the, the rule of thumb is if you have a... A trip that you spent um, about five thousand dollars on or more, then you'll definitely want to consider insurance. However, uh, if you don't, even if it's a if you spend less, and maybe if you don't want to lose the value of your trip, it's something that you should think about. Um, there are really two kinds of travel insurance. There, the, there's the garden variety uh, with named perils, which means that there that there are some restrictions that apply. And then there's a, a cancel-for-any-reason insurance uh, policy that you can get. And that allows you to cancel, as the policy says, for any reason and get a percentage of your purchase back. That's a, a great advice there. Do you, uh, is, is this a good time to go in our last 30 seconds? You know, coming out of the recession, are there deals to find if we're just sharp about it? Oh, absolutely. Um, if you go on a trip when no one else is going. So if you're if you're planning on going to the beach, maybe pick an off-season time. Like in the winter. Deal. And, uh, and, you know, just uh, 
cast a very wide net, too. There's so many deals to be found online. And don't forget about travel agents because they sometimes have deals that you're not going to be able to find uh, even online. Good stuff, Chris. Our thanks to you. The book is called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. It's available on Amazon and other online book retailers as well. And you can also learn more by checking out his website. Do it before you go. It's Elliot.org. Thanks again, Chris. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingbolder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me, beat it proud Ah, but I was so much old